Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today we will open up the Salt and Light Vault and bring out some of our favorite conversations from last year. First, author John Kuypers tells us how to find inner peace. And we meet singer-songwriter John Angotti. In our second half hour, Jason Everett tells us stories about Pope John Paul the Great that we've never heard before. And we meet singer-songwriter Rebecca Rubion. We begin now with Finding Inner Peace. Who among you can say that at times you're not preoccupied or that sometimes these preoccupations actually steal your peace? Or for many of us, unhappy situations are so common in our lives that they've stolen away our peace completely and constantly burden our hearts. And who wants to live that way? But Jesus says that he came to give us life and that we would have it abundantly. Our next guest, John Kuypers, who quit his executive career at age 38 to save himself from chronic unhappiness, says that Jesus offers a remedy for lack of peace and that it's not just spiritual, but also very practical. And to tell us more, I am now joined by John Kuypers. John, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. No, thanks very much, Deacon Pedro. Nice to be on the show with you. Yes, it's it's been a while you, that since you and I have spoken, um, mm-hmm. but we keep tabs on each other. What did Jesus mean when he says, "Peace I give you, my peace I bring you"? Well, of course, you know he's he's of course in the broadest sense of the word, bringing uh, the peace that can only be found in in God, and the peace that we know that when we are that we are loved by God. Uh, when we are in relationship with him, and of course he is the one that has reconciled our relationship with him through his sacrifice. Right. Um, I think what uh, perhaps, you know, the connection with the book that I've written is is the one particular teaching that he uh, gave in Matthew 7, 5, where he said, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay, yes, and I, and I was going to ask you that, so I'm good you jumped ahead, because I'm still stuck in the, what does removing the plank from my eye have to do with having peace? Yeah, well, that's what everybody asks when they when I bring this teaching to their attention, and my experience with it, it's, it's that it is essentially a Christian practice, he is saying, if there's something, a speck is basically a fault in another person. So yeah. someone cuts you off, they lie to you, they cheat on you, they break promises, they hit you, they hurt you. These are all uh, faults they have. And Jesus says, well, those are specks. Yeah. And that when you try to remove that speck, that, we're, that we fail. And the reason we fail is because we have a plank in our own eye. And so our failure is a major cause of what's robbing us of our peace. So what's rob okay let me rephrase that see if i get it so what's robbing me robbing me of my own peace is the fact that i'm too focused on your faults right you're noticing that fault that fault is bothering you and and then so that's the first thing that robs your peace and the second thing that robs your peace is that you attempt to fix it and you fail and so now you're frustrated by that failure so the fact that i'm trying to fix your faults Yes, because I'm not listening, I'm not responding, I'm not, right. uh, you know, as a child, I'm not obeying, uh, as your parent, you know, there's many uh, thousands of examples of people who irritate us by not doing things the way we would like to see them do it. 
Right. So then the secret then, the, or would you say the first rule to inner, inner peace then is to look at my own faults and take care of my own house first? That's right. That's all I have to do. Well, that's what Jesus says. He says in <laughs> Matthew 7, 5, you hypocrite. Well, I could even take a step further back in 7, 3. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when you have a, a, a log in your own eye? Yes. You hypocrite. First yes. Take the blank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck. So right. we are we, we be, essentially he's saying that we're hypocrites when we're trying to fix other people who have what really he's saying is we have that fault ourselves. Let's first fix our own fault, and then we'll see more clearly how to actually affect the other guy. So is it is it a matter of fixing my own faults, or is it a matter of letting go of other people's issues? Well, he's saying first take the plank out. So in other words, a plank is uh, is is, is a, a fault we have within ourselves, and, and, and that fault really is a judgment. And he says uh-huh. that in just the sentence before when he says, do not judge or you'll be judged. And the yes. way you judge, you'll be judged, and the measure you use will be measured to you. Right. So in other words, we use judgments. Judgments are both good and bad. The good judgment is we all we all want to use good judgment in making uh-huh. our decisions. But judgmentalism is when we are condemning the other person. Right. So we see their fault that they're they lie, they cheat, they're, you know, sexually uh you know, mm-hmm. sinful and so forth, and we condemn them for that. And that condemnation is the plank in our own eye, right. our own inability to see how to actually help that other person. Okay. Now, in the book, you talk about uh, how that act or that, that action actually means it's the equivalent of being neutral. Can you explain that? How is not focusing on the other person, but instead focusing on myself, actually being neutral? Well, that's been, after nearly 20 years of practicing this, this Christian teaching, that's been my experience of the effect of it. Uh-huh. When I pull the plank out of my eye, I have become neutral. Uh, and it's a temporary place where I temporarily am at peace that, that the, the fault that they have, that I'm okay with it. doesn't mean I endorse it. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm supporting or in favor of it. It just means that I accept that I... I I may not be able to fix it, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm okay with that. So you're and you're not letting that you're not bound by it. I guess you're that's free right. of it. It's a bias. That's really what a judgment is. It's a biased view. We uh, we're blinded really. And Jesus, if you think about it logically, he's saying if you have a plank in your eye, you're you're spiritually blind, unable to see how to help that other person. And what you're blinded by is your own perception of what the right thing is to do. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I think that if people heard you speaking, they'd say, okay, I get it. Um, thank you. Why, why do we need a whole book to explain us you know, how to do that? What, what is unique about the book in terms of helping us move through that process? Well, there's two things. Uh, the, the main thing is that it leads to uh, an immediate payoff, which is the thing that's bothering you that you've probably, with clients, I'm, I do a lot of coaching, as you know. Yes. I consider myself an inner peace leadership coach, and my background is in business leadership. Yes. But it's also true at home. that whenever we're trying to influence another person, we're trying to lead them. And so with this teaching, mm-hmm. we can be as successful at getting that other person to change, sometimes, right. Right. sometimes not. 
the biggest benefit is that we're at peace whether we succeed or don't succeed. So right. we've already achieved an immediate benefit for ourselves. Uh-huh. I coach people sometimes, Pedro, and I'm telling you, they will tell me that they have been trying for 5, 10, 15, and even 20 years to get that other person, their, their mm-hmm. son, their husband, their wife, their parent, to stop doing this irritating behavior that drives them crazy. Right. And I say, well, how many years in a row do you have to fail before you admit that your approach is failing? Yeah. And yeah. once you admit that, which is an element of surrender involved, mm-hmm. to yeah. admit okay. I'm failing, then we can say, well, then let's try it Jesus' way. Right. Jesus' way is to accept, well, the way I phrase it is, peace first, result second. Uh-huh. See, we always want the reverse as human beings. Results. I'll be at peace after you change, after I get the promotion, after I pay off my debt, yeah. after that person treats me nicely. Uh-huh. And what Jesus is saying by first taking the plank out of our eye is he's really saying, first come to peace with the person as they are. And then you'll be free. Yeah. Then you'll be free and to mm-hmm. see how you can actually influence them. Right. And then you may get the results you want, but you may also accept that what you wanted wasn't the right thing to want in the first place. Right, absolutely. Um, John, I, I, that's all the time we have, but I, I, I'm very excited about this. Uh, um, I, I love the fact that you call it a mission, inner peace mission, because I think that you're not just doing mission, mission work yourself, helping people, but also inviting us to, uh, to, to go in on a mission to find inner peace that's a, that's a jir- part of our, our journey. Um, so thank you for the work that you do and for sharing a little bit of that with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me as your guest, Pedro. John Kuypers is the founder of the Inner Peace Mission, helping others find their own answers and constantly grow in peace. He is a speaker and a coach and the author of five books. His latest book, The First Rule of Inner Peace, Jesus' Amazing Remedy for Unhappiness, is available uh, at your local bookstore. You can get it Indigo Chapters online. Also, uh, download for Kindle at Amazon.com. And, of course, you can find it at his website, innerpeacemission.org. Here now is our featured Artist of the Week, John Angotti, with There's a Presence from his album, I Believe. There's a presence in this place There's a presence in this place I can feel it in my bones And I know it in my soul There's a presence in this place There's a presence in this place There's a presence in this place I can feel that you are here And you take away my fear In this place I believe 
There's a presence in this place There's a presence in this place And it calls me to the poor To the suffering at our door There's a presence in I believe in you I believe in you I believe There's a presence in this place There's a presence in this place I can't see you, but I know Your mercy you have shown There's a presence in That was John Angotti with There's a Presence from his album, I Believe. John Angotti has been writing Christian music since he was a teenager at St. Joseph's Seminary where he was considering entering the priesthood. In 1995, John signed a distribution deal with World Library Publications, and since, since then he's published 11 albums. But there's more coming, and we're going to talk about soon. John is a true music missionary. He travels all over the world providing inspirational music and witness to people of all ages through his concerts, workshops, retreats, missions, conferences, and also, of course, in liturgy. And today, he's in the recording studio, but he's also joining me on the Salt and Light Hour. So, John and Gaudi, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yes. So, uh, a question I ask everybody: What was it like growing up in the Angadi household? Was it was it a Catholic household? Was it faith filled, or was it something else? It, it was very faith filled. Uh, it was very very Catholic. My mother and father are uh, my grandparents are all from Italy, yes. and we are all adopted from different families. And really? so, you know, music was something that was mandated in our household, music and math, you know, those were <laughs> mandatory. And um, so, you know, I played today because my mother made me, you know, so, so not something that so I chose on my own. Was it a large family, lots of brothers and sisters, siblings? Yeah, uh, there, was, there was four of us, yeah. an older brother, older sister, and a younger sister, so I was third. And you, and, um, and you were, like, you had to take piano lessons, you were forced <laughs> to do music? We were forced, yeah, and we started, I started, I was seven years old. Oh, and um it you know i 
I really didn't take a, a, a liking to it till I was later on in high school when I started to figure it out and, you know, playing more pop stuff and then playing in church and starting to write at that point. And, right. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of um, became like breathing, you know, second nature, so I didn't have to sit down and, like, figure out what's this and that. It just kind of right. happened. And when when did you start playing at Mass? Uh, you know, I started playing when I was about 14. Uh-huh. And um, when I went to the, the high school seminary, you know, we had mass every day, and because right. I was somebody who could play, they put me in charge of the music at that early age, and uh-huh. and I was just kind of winging it at the time, but, you know, Be Not Afraid and On Eagle Swings were brand new songs back then. Yes. And, you're you're uh, dating yourself. I am. Yeah. So, and, and that's when you started writing music. That's when I started writing, and based out of um, just personal... Know, teenage experiences of life. And would you say that the music you were writing was Christian music, or were you writing all kinds of stuff? It was all kinds of stuff. You know, it might have been the little girl that I was seeing yeah. at the moment, or yeah. uh, the teacher that upset me that day, or something. You know? Yeah. Now tell me something. So you were you went to a, a seminary high school? Yeah, it was a high school seminary. I was there for three years, sophomore, junior, senior year, and then I went on to the college seminary. It was a house of studies uh, for right. the Diocese of Wheeling, Charleston, at um, at Wheeling College uh-huh. in Wheeling, West Virginia. And so you went to this high school because, was it a choice that you wanted to go? It was, was a it choice like the that Catholic I was. Yeah. No, it, yeah, it was, a, you know, it was something that I, in our junior high years, we went to visit that place. And so, you know, it's something that seemed to appeal to me. Right. And um, so my parents wouldn't let me go my first year. Uh-huh. But then my second year, my sophomore year, they went ahead and let me uh, go because you never, you didn't come home but once every three weeks. Right. So what was that experience like being there? Um, you know, it, it was great. It was very formative. I mean, I do what I do today because of that mm-hmm. experience there. You know, the the, the prayer life. Uh, you know, the thing about us doing mass was mass was fun. Yeah, the, the the music was alive. It just wasn't something that was boring. The priests that were there were, you know, very um, creative in their thinking and and uh, very formative for me in terms of of you know ma- making liturgy mean something to us. So it sounds and, like um, yeah, it sounds like you're 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 different. I mean, you're lucky. I mean, a lot of people have have not very positive experiences with the church that you never went through periods of, of doubt or leaving the faith or. Oh yeah. A- a- after that. Oh yeah. You know, after I got out of the seminary, you know, I we kind of, I went to West Virginia university uh-huh. and, um, you know, fell off the wayside. And then when I would go to mass, the experience wasn't the same as right. what I had had. And so, uh-huh. you know, I kind of fell off the wagon for a while. And, and, uh, but then when I started playing for Mass again later on in my 20s, um, you know, I would only go to Mass if I was playing. Right. Because I was the only one that could create, uh, you know, music that seemed to, to reach people. You know, the other music that when I would go would be so drag and and boring. You could see the looks on people's faces. Nobody smiled. It was yeah. like, come on, where's the joy? Uh-huh. And uh, so I... Last year, I finished a master's in um, pastoral mm-hmm. studies from Catholic Theological Union. Right. And talk about losing faith. You know, in the first year or so of that process of unfolding, unpacking, you know, what all this means and the depth of it and the history of it. And the, the, there were periods of there I was like, 
wow, everything I really kind of thought may be a little bit different. And so, uh, you know, I did have some doubt and some mm-hmm. troubles, but I also realized that the, the doubt sends you deeper. Yeah. And when yeah. you go deeper, you run into the truth. True. And the truth is such a mystery that it's beyond words that it kind of leaves you in a sense of awe and wonderness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. You, you wouldn't be where you are now had you had not gone through those periods of doubt. Uh, um, yeah. you've, you've been doing this for a long time, um, fairly successfully. What would you say is your, your mission, if I could call it that, or, and, and today compared to 20 years ago, how would you say it's changed, or do you still think you still have the same focus in terms of your, your mission? It's completely, you know, 20 years ago, it was, it was trying to be successful as a singer and a songwriter. Mm-hmm. And today, it's trying to be successful in the change in hearts and to helping people connect that God is all around us, to walk people through their sufferings. You right. know, the, the, the mission of the music is to help other people in their journeys so that we can all unite. You know, we're all different from different perspectives and different personalities, but yet we're united in love. We're united in this mission of going out to the captives to set the captives free and and to the lost and to the lonely, because if we're not for that purpose, then what else are we for? Right. And um, so, you know, seeing church from many different perspectives, I see a lot of folks get stuck in the ritual without understanding what the ritual is to point us to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so that's, you know, how the mission has grown and changed, because now, you know, if I could give it all away, I would. But yeah. I have two children and a wife who huh. seem to want to be fed and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I'm able to do this as a living at this point, which is a blessing. Yeah. But uh, the, the mission is, is beyond anything other than service absolutely now you've written uh, i mean you're you have a lot of music contemporary music pop sound pop music liturgical music and now um there's a musical that you're recording tell us about job the musical job has been on my mind since the late 90s i started it back in like 97 98 oh yeah and um i was music director at the cathedral in wheeling west virginia we had just did jesus christ superstar uh-huh. and for some reason the topic of job was on my heart and i really didn't know much about it so i started writing it way back then and then would put it away for a year and then bring it back out until finally through this master's program i was working on one of the topics was uh one of the classes was god in the mystery of suffering mm-hmm. and um when that all unpacked, that whole joke thing came back to me, and it was like, I've got to finish this, because the only thing that we all have in common is that everybody has to deal with innocent suffering. Right. That where is God in, in you know, innocent death and all that kind of stuff. And so it compelled me to, uh, to really take this to a new level. And so over the last couple of years where I did it as a workshop in L.A. at the L.A. Religious Ed Congress oh, yeah. to last summer doing it as a full-blown show to doing it as a workshop at NCYC to uh-huh. now where I've rewritten it again to where it's now we're ready to really present this um, it, it, um, to, to the world in a way that 
reaches beyond the church doors. It's very kind of catechal. It has a lot of evangelization in it. And it retells the story of Job in a way that is relevant now. Okay. So it's a full... So the, that's the name of the show. It's called Job, the Now Testament. Okay. And so it's a full, like, full-length Broadway-style musical. Yes, it's a two-hour nice. musical that is, you know, it has fun stuff in it. And, you know, it, it's a story of an everyday man who has to deal with those same sufferings. And as he um, is re- given his lament to God, he falls into a slumber, and into his slumber, all the folks that are around him, you know, he dreams, and in the dream, he becomes Job. Right. But almost as this Wizard of Oz feeling where he becomes this character and takes on the character of Job, and all his friends take on characters of Job, and his children, and the God character, and Satan character, and it's this, you know, wonderful musical that unfolds that, and as the story ends... He comes out of the dream and he's back to where he was, having to deal with his own death. Right. Sounds... And now he hand now he deals with it in a whole new way, because of the way that the story of Job has helped him, uh, you know, see God and see suffering with mm-hmm. a whole new slant. Sounds amazing. Sounds fascinating. So, so this is a musical that people can 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 put on in their high school or church or wherever, or or Absolutely. a theater company can can actually do it. So there's a script. There's there's a score. They can contact you if they if they want to find out more. Absolutely. And and you, I hear you're recording. You're actually doing the recording right now, so it'll be available. Right, as we a, are right as in the available. middle of the soundtrack. Nice. To, you know, yeah, this month. Excellent. Well, John, that's all the time we have. But thank you so much. This has been this has been really good. I'm glad we finally connected. I know you you've you've been around for a long time, and and doing great work. So uh, it's been uh, a real blessing to finally have you on the show and to learn a little bit about what you're doing now. Well, thank you, Deacon. It's a pleasure. You can learn more about John Angotti, purchase his music, or book him at his website, johnangotti.com. That's Angotti with two T's. We're going to put that on our, on our site as well, so you can find it easily. Here he is with I Send You Out from his album, Angotti Live. I baptize you in the name of the Father. Baptize you in the name of the Son. I baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Go out and spread good news. I send you up.
We're listening to John Angotti with I Send You Out from his album Angotti Live. You're listening to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. A French novelist once wrote, Tell me what you love and I will tell you who you are. And this is the approach that Jason Everett took in studying the life and work of St. John Paul the Great by entering the man's heart. It's a fascinating read, and to tell us all about it, I am now joined by Jason Everett. Jason, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thanks for having me on. So, um, I, I think most people know you as the Theology of the Body for Teens guy. So, not the John Paul II expert. Did you become interested in Pope John Paul through Theology of the Body, or, or that, that, how did that happen? Well, I was somewhat spoiled in that I got to see him more than 20 times uh, <laughs> over the course of my life. And in many of my travels, I met many priests and bishops and cardinals who were very close friends to him. And because of my love for John Paul II, I, I would always pump these people for information. Well, tell right. me about this. What does he like about that? And they would divulge these stories to me that I had never seen in print before, and I kept collecting them and thinking, one day i got to put them all together and make a book out of it. And then with the announcement of his canonization uh, coming up you know, about a year ago, I said, okay, it's time. And so I started compiling them all, read about 50 biographies, and then had George Weigel, his official biographer, yes. uh, read the whole thing, proof it, and endorse it. Okay, so that's so, where it all came from. Okay, I see. So you had been compiling stories for the last 25 years, <laughs> basically. Um, did, did your idea of, of what the book was going to be change since uh, John Paul died? Uh, well, you know, I, I would say so, because at the beginning it was just a collection of these fantastic stories and miracles and anecdotes that really drew you into understanding who he was. And then as I was writing it and reading all the biographies and trying to think, what direction should I go in, I realized that there were these, these themes of love coming up in his life, love for the Virgin Mary, for the cross, for the Eucharist, for young people, and for human love. And mm -hmm. so many of these stories seemed to clump into those categories. The book almost seemed to write itself. Right. Now, how did you, like you said, you've probably heard tons of stories. I've heard tons of stories. How did you kind of weed, <laughs> differentiate fact from fiction, urban legends, that kind of stuff? Yeah, one thing I was very obsessive with is I don't want any urban legends and apocryphal stories of the Holy Father making their way into the text. So yeah. I made sure when it came time to publish it, I went back to all of the original sources and had them tell me their story specifically, like uh, an archbishop or cardinal telling me this story or that story. Um, and then George Weigel, his biographer, who knows him as well as anyone, yeah. read the entire thing and helped me clean up some elements and drop some things and add others. And then for things that he didn't know the answer to, we, he put me in touch with John Paul's uh, personal secretary, Cardinal Stanislav oh, Jeevish. And yeah. so Jeevish was able to go through some of it as well and help us out to make sure that it's all fact. Yeah. Now, I, 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 it, the thing that probably intrigued me the most, <laughs> I don't know if this is a good thing or not about the book, is, is the person who wrote the foreword. How did you end up connecting with Mario Ensler and, and even getting him to write a foreword? Why him? Well, Mario Ensler is one of the John Paul Swiss guards, and there was a, a day that I was at morning mass, I saw him Monday or Tuesday morning, and uh, just praying about the book. It was one of John Paul's feast days, actually. Uh, I think it was the day that he was um, 
I believe it was October 22nd, uh, the inauguration of his papacy. Just praying about the book, and a priest walked up to me and said, Oh, we haven't caught up in a while. How you been doing? I said, oh, I'm writing a book on John Paul II and all these <laughs> great stories. I said, You don't know anyone who might have some personal stories. He said, well, my brother-in-law was his Swiss guard, and he's been wanting for a long time to share these stories, but he just doesn't have the time. Uh And so it was really a divine appointment where we were able to get some of these stories from someone who knew him on an intimate basis in that way. Yeah, no, it's it's great. It's great. Now, there's a lot of stories in the book. You heard a lot of stories. You have a lot of personal experience. What would you say is one or maybe two stories that moved you the most or that surprised you the most about John Paul? Uh, one of my favorites was when he came to visit the Archdiocese of Baltimore, I believe it was in 95. The Vatican always sends out a crew in advance to make sure everything's ready for his visit. And the head man there is a priest by the name of Father Roberto Tucci. Uh-huh. And when he arrived at the bishop's residence where the Pope was going to stay for a little rest, he was walking down a hallway, and the hallway was lined on either side with doors that all look identical. One of them opened up to a chapel with the Blessed Sacrament. And Father Tucci turned to the priest I know out there, Father White, and he said to Father Michael White, now when the Holy Father comes, you just make sure this door is closed. We can't let him know that there's a chapel here. Because the Holy Father, whenever he found the Blessed Sacrament, would go in, he'd get lost in prayer, and it would ruin the entire schedule. So they would actually have to reroute the Pope Mobile away from Catholic churches, because he'd want to get out, go into the church, and the schedule would be annihilated. So so when John Paul II came... He's walking down this this narrow hallway, all the doors look identical, and he passes the closed door of the chapel, and he just stops, and he turns around, he looks at the door, and then he looked over at Father Tucci, and he shook his finger and he wagged his head at him, and then he (laughs) turned around and went right into that room to pray. And Father Michael White, he said there's no way on earth he could have known. He's never been here before, and all the doors look the same, but he sensed our Lord's presence. And then he did it again the very next day at a different venue, that he could sense the presence of our Lord. Yeah. A lot of the stories that you tell, and, and I'm sure that, I mean, stories that I've heard, and I'm sure stories that you've heard but didn't tell, um, really show John Paul as a mystic, that, that there was there was an uh, otherworldly divine connection that he had. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think he is going to go down in church history as one of the great mystics of the church, but you know, as with all saints, things of this depth take a while to come to the surface. Mm. They had asked him, you know, has the Virgin Mary ever, ever appeared to you? Yeah. Said, no. They said, has the Virgin Mary ever spoken to you? And he said, well, yes. And on one of those instances, my friend was sitting next to him, Father or Monsignor George Tracy, and it was after they had received communion, he was celebrating with the Holy Father, he said, John Paul II sat down, put his hands in his face, and started sobbing and crying, and saying, no, Maria, no, Madonna, no, Maria. And my friend Monsignor George just sat there and watched and listened to this, not knowing what to do. After the Mass was over, a Vatican prelate came up to Monsignor George and said, oh, did you enjoy your Mass with the Holy Father? And he said, I did, but he said, after communion, the Holy Father was very shaken up, and he said it, was, he said it seemed like he was speaking to the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. And the Vatican prelate said, well, we know, he does that all the time, and she's the only one he listens to around here. Yes. That his prayer life was quite deep, and this is why Cardinal Ratzinger, then Benedict XVI, said, if you really want to get to know John Paul II, it's not by reading his books you know, or, or studying his speeches, it's by celebrating Mass with him and yes. by letting yourself be drawn into the intense silence of his prayer. Yes, amazing. And I think, I mean, we talk about he's a saint, and we talk about St. John Paul the Great 
as you said, he wasn't sainted because of theology of the body or because of encyclicals or, or speeches or tearing down, you know, bringing down communism. He's sainted, I think, for these five, you know, these loves that you've identified, um, because I think that that's where the witness is for us, that we too can have a love for the Virgin Mary, for the cross, for the Blessed Sacrament, for human love and young people. Those are the five. Can you, can you maybe tell us a little bit about how those five can be uh, examples for all of us in terms of our, our journey towards holiness? Yeah, and, and I'll admit, that five number, it's arbitrary. I could have made yes. the chapter 500 chapters long, <laughs> made it as 500 loves. Yeah. His love for Poland, of unborn children, of this and of that. Yeah. You know, but at some point, you needed to draw a line. And so started with these five, but, you know, you look at his love, for example, of, you know, the Eucharist and Our Lady, which we've spoken of, um, you know, and how he would hardly ever see him without a rosary in his hand. Yeah. People who knew him well said he was in such a state of constant prayer. It's not as if he took time to enter prayer. He took time to get out of prayer for the sake of other people, yeah. to actually yeah. have conversations and do business, but it seemed as if he was in a state of constant prayerfulness. And his suffering, especially toward the end of his life, you know, he really taught us how to live and gave us the theology of the body, but his greatest homily was really spoken with no words, that mm-hmm. he taught us how to die, mm-hmm. and he taught us the value of redemptive suffering. And in the midst of all of his suffering, he had a great sense of humor about it all. I mean, he spent 164 days in the Jumeli Hospital, he started calling it Vatican III, <laughs> and he suffered so much, but he, he had a sense of humor about it all, and he also knew that the goal is not just to accept your sufferings or to surrender to them, but for your sufferings to become victorious. Because in becoming man, Christ redeemed all things human, human work, human love, human suffering, and all of it can take on a supernatural significance if we have the eyes to see. And so if we have suffering in our lives, whether it's cancer, unemployment, a difficult spouse, whatever it is, everything could be offered up as a prayer. Because as Christians, we often think the Church is just a collection of believers, when the body of Christ is an actual extension of Jesus Christ through time, space, and history, and he continues to redeem mankind through the suffering of his body, the Church. And so what John Paul is trying to teach us, that you shouldn't waste your suffering. Every cross that you go through can be offered up and release great graces for the church. So we need to learn mm-hmm. to embrace that cross and offer it up. And he gave us such a beautiful example of that. Yeah, that's so true. Great lesson, great lessons for all of us. Um, and I'm sure we're going to be unpacking a lot of his life, his, his works, his, his speeches, his sayings as, as the years go by. Thank you, Jason, for writing the book. I, I've read a lot about John Paul II, and this is one of the, the best books that I've read on his life, the most complete. So thank you for helping us get to know St. John Paul the Great a little better. Oh, you're welcome. And, you know, if people want to get the book, they can get them in single copies, but we recommend get them in bulk. They're only $2 a piece in bulk. Excellent. So that way people can get a case at a time and use that to evangelize others. Excellent. Thank you. That's a great, a great, great offer. Um, thank you very much, Jason. You're welcome. God bless. Jason Everett is a popular speaker on many subjects and is the author of more than a dozen books, including Pure Faith, Theology of the Body for Teens, and How to Find Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul. He and his wife, Kristalina, run the website chastityproject.com, and they live in Colorado with their children. Jason's new book, St. John Paul the Great, His Five Loves, is published by Totus Tuus Press, and you can purchase your copy 
or in bulk, $2 a copy at jp2book.com. That's jp and the number 2book.com, but we're going to put that link on our site so you can find it easily. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Rebecca Rubion, with Martyr Heart from her album Forests. That was Rebecca Rubion with Martyr Heart from her album Forests. Well, if you saw a picture of Rebecca Rubion, you'd never think that the voice that you just heard came out of that body. 
And that's what's amazing about her. Sometimes small, intimate, and affectionate, and sometimes soaring and passionate, belting it. And her songs are also refreshing. Fun, meaningful, thoughtful, folk-infused, indie pop, if I can say that that, that's a combination. It's always great to meet new artists. And so I am pleased to welcome Rebecca Rubion to our program. Rebecca, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you so much for having me. It's, It's so fun. So you're... You're in Nashville. Did you grow up in Nashville? Are you originally from there? Or are you from you're from the South, though? I think I can I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. Actually, yeah. I was born in New Orleans, okay. and and both sides of my family are from there. But I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. So right. I'm just a Southern girl. A Southern girl. Now, so what was it like growing up in the Rubion household? <laughs> um, you know, I was so blessed um, to have a really wonderful childhood. Uh, my parents um, just really cultivated a rich, rich uh, faith life in all of us. I'm one of five kids. Uh-huh. Um, I'm the second of five, and I actually live with my older sister here in Nashville. We're we're Irish twins, so we're really close right. in age. And um, yeah, it was just it was really, really wonderful. Um, so my good. parents listened to some great music. I grew up with Carol King and Eva Cassidy and. Yeah. Um, just great matriarchs um, right. of the 60s and 70s. And um, so I got to learn how I think really great music and great songs mm-hmm. were made. Um, and that definitely ins- inspired me. Absolutely. Now, did you have to like take piano lessons or when you were little or how was that? that? Yes. Um, <laughs> my parents made actually all five of us take piano. Yeah. And... Um, when I was in second grade, they they put me in lessons, and um, they wouldn't. I was the last one to quit. They wouldn't let me quit uh, piano lessons. I think they saw that I I like had a passion for it, even right. though I hated practicing. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I I love just I love going to sit at the piano, and I learned all my songs by ear. So yes. I would just memorize you a song, fake it, as yeah. soon as I learned it, and um, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and and actually, our piano teacher growing up would have us create a song for re- recital every year. Oh, nice! So that was kind of an assignment that I really like. I just relished in, and mm-hmm. um, I think that those were some of my first songs. For right. Sure. So you were writing music at an early age. Yes. Yes. And even I like I always say I was born a songwriter because growing up in between two sisters, the three of us would just make up songs constantly and I was always kind of the brains behind the outfit um, writing the melody and the word and then the words and then we would um, perform them for my right. parents which right. was so <laughs> sweet um, so cool. I just kind of I've just kind of always loved to create songs right and now as as a Catholic growing up in a faith-filled family did you have to sing at mass were you in the choir or doing solos at Christmas Eve mass that kind mm-hmm. of thing you know, I was never really a classical voice. Um, <laughs> right. I took choir in high school, but my my parents really, um, they loved to, like, encourage us to participate in church in any way that we could, and mm-hmm. I I wanted to, to be part of the worship band. We had a life, t- life teen mass yeah. growing up, and um, so we did a lot of praise and worship songs, which yeah. were really beautiful, and I got to play kind of in a band uh, atmosphere and that really right. ha- like taught me so much. Absolutely. So you, 
So you're not classical. I think we can hear that in your voice, but th- but there's a mm-hmm. lot of things in there. So how would you describe how would you describe not just your music style, but your how would you describe y- you yourself as a singer? Sure. Um, y- you know, people ask me that like every day, <laughs> and every day I struggle to answer that question. Um, I I definitely have some grit and some soul. Uh, just mm-hmm. in my lyrics and in my voice, in my delivery, um, and I think that comes from my New Orleans roots. Yeah. Um, but I also have kind of a folky, uh, especially now, like the songs that I'm writing currently. Um, I kind of have yeah. a, a folk song, um, yeah, yeah, just singer songwriter uh, type style, and mm-hmm. I think that comes from growing up in Alabama and also moving to Nashville where it's all about the song here. Uh-huh. So um, I hope that answered your Yeah, question. no, okay. Well, let me ask you this. Has it, if it's changed, is that because you moved to Nashville or is that because you're growing and maturing as a, as a person, as an artist? And does that mean that you'll just keep changing and you're not sort of going to be pigeonholed into being this kind of artist or that kind of artist? Sure. You know, I think it's both uh, the fact that I've changed habitat but I've also <laughs> grown up and, and honed my sound. Um, I've been writing and performing since I was 16. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been doing it for about 10 years now. And I think at the beginning, I, I had a lot more jazz chords. And, yeah. um, you know, that was back when I was in Louisiana for college. And, mm-hmm. um, and then as I've matured, I've become more, um, I've let the music composition get out of the way and and let my songs speak for themselves right um if that makes sense yeah it does did you did you study music in college what did you study i didn't i studied public relations actually and really (laughs) okay it's funny how useful (laughs) that that happens to be in my career because i'm woefully terrible at promoting myself so it's good to at least know have an education on what i'm supposed to be doing there wow if every Um, if every indie artist was a publicist we'd be great (laughs) (laughs) yes it's such a it's such a helpful background for sure i love publicists they're my best friends um Mm -hmm. because they give me content you yes. you told me just before we went on air that you you were undercover, um, and I don't want. I think <laughs> it's safe to blow your cover here because most of our our listeners are Catholic. So cool. w- why why do you feel uh, not that there's a? I mean, t- to be an undercover Catholic artist in in the secular world, what's what's that all about? I think that not only in my music but also in my Um, just my personal life, um, I've always taken opportunities to minister to people who are outside of the church. Mm. I kind of, I like to like equate myself in a very humble way to, to Paul, St. Paul. Yeah. Um, I think that you just like Christ had to become like us to, to teach us, uh, about our relationship with God. I'm, I have to go out into the world and not be of the world, but be in the world. And um, I think that, that I'm called to that ministry mm-hmm. and to write secular songs. Yes. Um, but but that, that all ultimately, uh, it's my hope and my aim to point to a greater, a greater power, which is for me, uh, God and, mm-hmm. and Christ, and um, to speak to that beauty of, of our relationship with Him as His people. 
And as a Catholic, um, a lot of my songs are influenced by my Catholic faith. I have a couple songs that are directly about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you wouldn't know that unless I told you, or mm-hmm. um, unless you knew maybe I was a Christian or Catholic artist, you know. So um, I guess that's what I mean by by being an undercover yeah. Catholic artist. Yeah, and I think you know what I mean. Funnily enough, I think that your music—you're right. Nobody's going to listen to your music and say, "Oh, that's she's a Christian," you know, CCM or anything. But sure. But the, I think that if you listen to it, you do get. It's that music that that lifts you up, and it's pointing to something greater. I, I think it's there. Do you have situations mm-hmm. where you're hanging out with artists who are not of faith, or who are of or who are Christian but not Catholic, and then find out your what happens when they find out that you are Catholic? Um, you know, I think a lot of people. Uh, I hope a lot of people um, really respect. Uh, mm-hmm. my my beliefs, even if they're not of faith, um, if they don't have any particular beliefs whatsoever, yeah. um, after listening to my music, knowing my art first, I think, um, and I think as Christians, we kind of have to, we have to be known for who we are first. Yeah. And, and um, I love that St. Francis talked about, um, you know, preach the, preach gospel, the gospel if necessary, use words. And yes. I, I think... Like I kind of equate that in, in to my art. Just p- I want people to know my music first, mm-hmm. and then it, as they get to know me as a person, um, I think that they'll more more they'll be more um, quick to just respect my beliefs. Absolutely, because I am not. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to explain because I think that I think we need openly Christian artists. I think we need CCM. I think. Um, the worship ministry is so important. We need to minister uh, within, but um, yeah, yeah, I just, yeah, I just feel a strong calling to minister to people. Who Absolutely, are, yeah. CCM who has a yeah it has a know? place, but there's also a place for people that are doing. And you're not the only one. There are a lot. I speak to a lot of artists, and there's a lot of them who are out there. In fact, we have a segment here called the Hollywood Undercover Missionary, and it's a guy who works for for, uh, for uh, I won't say what company, but a, a uh, an animated motion picture company in Hollywood. Mm. And oh, that's amazing. And he's the undercover missionary, so in Hollywood. And like him, there are, there are lots. Um, the other thing I wanted to say before I let you go is that you're very kind in, in doing an album giveaway. So one of our listeners will get an album, and this is a sp- limited edition album called The Old, The Young, and it's got songs from several of your other albums as well as two singles. So um, I think that's a very special treat. So somebody next week will adou- announce the winner of that. So thank you, Rebecca, for, for that yes, beautiful gift. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, hopefully our, our paths will cross one day. Yes. As I mentioned, Rebecca is going to be at, at uh, Catholic Fest in Wisconsin on July 4th. You can learn more about Rebecca at her website, RebeccaRubion.com. That's R-O-U-B-I-O-N, but we're going to put that link on our site just so that you can find it easily. Here now is Rebecca with her new single, This Is What Love Looks Like. It's a flash of a shooting star Sunbeams through the rain It's a beep, beep, beat of your heart It's a smile that starts your day And it makes you say, it makes you say La la la, la la la, this is what love looks like. La la la, la la la, 
were listening to Rebecca Rubion's single, This Is What Love Looks Like. And that concludes the special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Remember to visit our website, saltandlighttv.org slash radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro.